Chapter Thirteen of the Life and Adventures of Michael Armstrong, the Factory Boy. This is a LibriVox recording. Chapter Thirteen: Disagreeable Meditations, A Confidential Interview with a Faithful Servant, Another Interview Not Quite So Confidential with a Daughter. Martha and Michael take a pleasant walk together to visit the widow Armstrong. A consultation. It will be easily believed that Sir Matthew rode back to Dowling Lodge not in the very sweetest humour in the world. Bring up a child in the way he should go is an admirable proverb, and certain it is that when that way is agreeable, he does very rarely depart from the same. Thus it happens that the young gentlemen and ladies, sons and daughters of the Millocrats, who pile thousands upon thousands and acres upon acres, by the secret mysteries of their wonderful compound of human and divine machinery, do rarely or never take their way into the dwellings that shelter and that hide the sufferings of their operatives. Nothing is so distasteful to a truly elegant mill-owner as any allusion, domestic or foreign, gossiping or professional, religious or political to his factory or his factory people. And the gay, fatherly phrase, Don't talk of that, for God's sake, my dear, it smells of the shop, has turned away many innocent eyes from contemplating that, which had they looked upon it, could hardly have endured so long. To know, therefore, that the willful, whimsical, rich, and independent Mary Brotherton, while still too young to understand anything whatever of the real nature of trade and our glorious manufactures, to know that she was beginning to thrust herself behind the scenes and do heaven knows what mischief among his devilish people, instead of minding her own business and falling in love with his adorable son, was altogether too much to be borne with patience and had it not been that the weather was so hot as to make him long for a draught of hawk and iced water, a natural instinct would have made him turn aside from his park gates, and pursue the by-path which led to his factory, where, as he knew by experience, the sort of temper he was then in could find great relief, without anybody but the overlookers being in the secret. As it was, however, Sir Matthew Dowling reached his home, and the first thing he heard from the man who threw wide its portals was that Mr. Parsons was waiting for him in his study. "'Bring me a biscuit, a bottle of stein, and some iced water,' said the knight in the accent of one not born to enter the venerable presence of hunger, thirst, and cold, nor into that of heat or vexation either. "'What's the matter now, Parsons?' said he, throwing himself into a delicious armchair, and perceiving by one glance at the sour visage before him that something or other had gone wrong. The mill's not burned down, I suppose, is it? And I'm not sure that would be the worst thing that could happen, Sir Matthew, if it was, replied the confidential servant. It is well insured, you know, sir, and would bring in a famous sum, as sure as the bank, and that's more, I take it, than we can say of all our debts. Who the devil has been gossiping with you about the debts? What business is that of yours, I should like to know? Mind your billy rollers, Mr. Parsons, and take care your hands keep up with your machinery. That's your work and I can tell you, if you don't know it already, that the success of the concern depends more upon that than upon any other thing whatever. The building is paid for, and the glorious machinery is paid for. Mind that, sir, and where's the interest of it to come from if you let the hands go to sleep over it? I tell you what, Mr. Parsons, an overlooker is not worth his salt if he does not continually keep it in his head, that the more the machinery is improved, the faster must the brats move to follow it and you may rely upon it that where this is remembered early and late, day hours and night hours, the concern will answer and every manager of it, master or man, will live well. 
but by the Lord Harry, where it is not, they are sure to go the wrong side of the post, as you are to go to bed to-night. It stands to reason, Parsons. If one man knows how to drive, and another doesn't, the one man's team will pay, and the others won't. And I will be much obliged to any man who will tell me how I am to help being undersold in the market, if I don't contrive to make my machinery go as fast and as long, too, as the best of them. That's the business you are to attend to, Mr. Parsons, and I won't trouble you about any other. All true, Sir Matthew, every word of it. And I can't but say, though I scorn to be a boaster, I can't but say that I think I have given you reason to trust me. I am noted for being able to keep the children awake, and going longer than any other man in the mill. There isn't an overlooker in Ashley that can equal me with the strap or the billy roller either, when I chooses to make him tell. I know all that, my good fellow, and I value your services accordingly. But I have been devilishly put out this morning, and that makes me snappish. Besides, I am quite sure you have got something disagreeable to tell by your face. So out with it, man, and make an end of it. Make an end of it, Sir Matthew, replied Parsons, repeating the last words of the sentence with marked emphasis. By the Lord, sir, that is exactly what I am come to beg you to do. You must make an end of your charity job, Sir Matthew, for it don't answer in any way. We have lost one of the nimblest set of fingers we had that wanted nothing but the strap to keep him going for sixteen hours out of the four-and-twenty, and I wish you could just hear what gratitude you have gained in return for it. There is not a single day comes round that the rickety little Armstrong don't blubber over his work like a church spout. And I overheard him, the young villain, when he didn't think I was so near. I overheard him with the scavenger girl as was cleaning under the mules, looked up and asked, why, for he cried, when his brother had got such a good fortune. I heard him answer, and what do you think he said, Sir Matthew? How the devil should I know? replied the chafed capitalist. Don't stand mumming there, but out with it. Neither more nor less than this, Sir Matthew. Don't talk of his good fortune. Bet, says he, he's the most unhappiest boy in all the world, says he. "'Pestilent little vermin!' exclaimed Sir Matthew through his closed teeth. "'Infernal fool that I was to listen to that idiot woman! "'And Crockley, too, who ought to know better, "'has been badgering me exactly with the same execrable nonsense. "'Never again, as long as I live, will I be persuaded "'to try any other scheme with the people "'than what we have always acted upon. "'Brutes and beasts they are, "'and like brutes and beasts they should be treated.' "'And so they shall by me as long as my head's above ground. "'Well, sir, I can't but say I'm glad you are come back to your right mind, as one may call it. "'Such romantical goings-on can never answer in a factory, Sir Matthew. "'It ain't the way to do business, and business is what we have got to do. "'And so, sir, I hope you will send that scamp Mike back to the mill tomorrow morning, "'for they can't say no worse of it. "'Let us pay him off as we will, than that he's the most unhappiest boy in all the world.' and that's what they says already. It won't do, Parsons. That boy must be got rid of. What do you stare for, you ass? Do you think I am going to get hanged for him? Oh, dear no, Sir Matthew. You know the value of your own life better than that, anyhow. God forbid you should not. Only I did not overwell understand what you meant by getting rid of him. I must contrive to send him out of the way, at least out of this neighborhood, and, moreover, with his own consent and his mother's, too. That is what I meant, Mr. Parsons. You must know best, Sir Matthew, 
but it seems to me you are taking a great deal of trouble about him. If you'll just let me have him back in the mill, I think I'll venture to say that he shall never get within reach of plaguing you any more, and I'd get a pennyworth out of him into the bargain. For a tolerably sharp fellow, Parsons, you're devilish dull about this business. Can't you guess that I should not be taking all the trouble you talk of, about such a beggar's brat as that, unless I had reasons for it? There's that lord's daughter that got me into the scrape. Won't she be ferreting and ferreting, till she finds out that the sweet little master has not found himself comfortable here? And ten times worse than her, ay, a hundredfold, is that obstinate headstrong girl of old Brotherton's. My lady Clarissa might be troublesome from mere folly, and might perhaps be stopped short at any mischief she was doing by a few words from me. But not the old one himself could stop Mary Brotherton if she got a whim in her head. You should have seen her just now, Mr. Parsons, raving at me with her colour up and her eyes flashing, for all the world as if she had just escaped out of Bedlam, only because I cautioned her against going into Joe Drake's pigsty. A pretty place, wasn't it, for a girl of her fortune to go visiting? But in she went, by heaven. And you may rely upon it, if such a girl as that, who cares for nothing and to nobody, once gets it into her head to go about among the factory people, she'll kick up more than dust and we shall find it easy to lay again. I've been told already by one who I suspect wanted to put me on my guard, that this Mary Brotherton wished to have a little talk with Michael Armstrong. I can put two and two together as well as Miss Mary. She was at our cursed play last night, and I'll bet my life to a rotten egg that she wants to ask him what he cried for. Likely enough, sir, replied the overlooker with a grim smile. I heard of the crying. I won't say that I didn't. You may guess, Sir Matthew, that it was a good deal talked about among the servants. And then t'other of em blubbering away at the mill must give a pretty notion, mustn't it, sir, of your goodness to em? Say no more about it, it makes me mad, exclaimed the knight. One or both of em shall be sent to Deep Valley Mill, Parsons, if I die for it. There's none but prentices taken in at the mill in the Deep Hollow, Sir Matthew, if you mean that. Yes, sir, I do mean that, replied Sir Matthew with a very ominous frown. And there Master Michael Armstrong shall go, prentice or no prentice, or I'll give him up my place and take his. That's all then, Sir Matthew, said the overlooker, preparing to depart. I come to put you up to the boys' ingratitude, and have nothing further to say at present. You need not trouble yourself any more about that, Mr. Parsons. I will take care of him, replied the knight. Whereupon Mr. Parsons made a bow and departed. Sir Matthew Dowling had already taken one tumbler of hock and water. He now took a second, and then, throwing himself back in his armchair, indulged for several minutes in very deep meditation. At the end of that time it seemed as if the good Rhine wine had done its office, for suddenly the knight's countenance became animated. The heavy gloom which had rested upon it disappeared, and springing to his feet he rang the bell with a sort of lively jerk which showed he had some project in hand that he greatly relished. It was the lively Peggy who answered the summons, but though she entered almost out of breath from the eagerness with which she had traversed the passage which led from the kitchen to the study, and though she brought into immediate activity all the agacerie of which she was capable, a smiling nod was all she got in return, so eager did Sir Matthew appear to say, Go to Miss Martha, Peggy, as fast as you can, and tell her to come here to me this very minute. Go, my dear, and make haste. There's a good girl. 
Peggy was disappointed and angry, for she had a great deal to tell Sir Matthew about Michael Armstrong's ungratefulness, and all that the servants thought and said about it. But the command she had received was too peremptory to be trifled with, and though she very nearly slammed the study door in shutting it, she failed not to deliver her message, which was instantly obeyed with the most dutiful alacrity by Martha. "'Did you send Peggy for me, papa?' said she in entering. "'Yes, Martha, I did.' "'How are you today, my dear girl?' "'I have not seen you before this morning.' "'Sit down, love, sit down. "'I want to talk to you, Martha. "'I have got something upon my mind that vexes me, "'and I am going to open my heart to you about it.' "'Oh, my dear, dear papa,' returned Martha, "'I should be so glad if I could be of any use to you.' "'You can, Martha. "'You can be of great use and comfort to me.' In the first place, you must be my father confessor, and let me confess my faults to you, and I hope you will give me absolution if you can, for I really am very uncomfortable. What can you mean, papa? Why, my dear, I mean that I have been foolish enough to put myself in a great pet, when I ought not to have done any such thing. It is always wrong to let temper get the better of one. But in this case it was particularly so. You know the fuss that has been made about this little fellow that I have taken out of the factory. I do assure you, my dear girl, that I really intended to be a very kind friend to him. But I got so provoked at his crying upon the stage last night in that beautiful speech that was written for him that I cuffed him soundly for it when he came off, and I am sadly afraid that I frightened the poor little fellow so violently that he will never feel comfortable and at ease with me again. You cannot think how this vexes me. Oh, my dear papa, he will never remember it any more if you will please to forgive him. And Martha's heart bounded with joy as she spoke, to think how completely Miss Brotherton's opinion would be changed could she but hear her father speak thus amiably of what had passed. No, Martha, no, I cannot bear to see his frightened look. And besides, my dear, I shall never be sure of myself. You know how hasty I am. I should live in perpetual terror lest anything should tempt me to give him a cuff. There are other reasons too, my dear Martha, which induce me to think that I should be doing the little fellow and his family infinitely more service if I apprenticed him to some good trade than he could ever gain by running about Dowling Lodge. The excellent good sense of this observation struck Martha as very valuable, and she uttered the most cordial approbation of the wisdom and goodness from whence it proceeded. "'I am exceedingly glad you agree with me, my dear child,' proceeded Sir Matthew, "'for I have an idea that you could be very useful in making the arrangement. "'Do you happen to know where the little boy's mother lives, my dear Martha?' "'No, papa, but Michael could show me.' "'Then you should have no objection to pay her a visit on this business, my dear?' "'Oh, dear, no. I should like it so much.' "'Very well, my love. Then you shall set out immediately, if you will.' Or, stay, it would perhaps be better to get you the paper first that they will have to sign. You must remember to tell them, Martha, that I shall undertake to pay all the fees. It certainly is an excellent thing for a poor family like Armstrong's to have a boy apprentice to a good trade. I trust the mother will not refuse her consent from any selfish notion that she may lose the boy's help thereby. It would be really very wicked. You may tell her, my dear, that I shall continue to send her down nice and nourishing food, and that little Michael shall be taught to write and well instructed every way. 
so she may be quite easy about him, and he will be sure to send her a letter every now and then. The knight concluded with a smile of kindness that perfectly enchanted his daughter. Oh, my dear, dear papa, she said, how few people there are who know you as well as I do. Let me go and look for Michael now, papa, shall I? I should like to go down to his mother with him at once, and tell her of your great goodness. The papers could be sent afterwards, you know. Very well, dear, trot away then. Get your bonnet and parasol, find your little squire, and then come back here to me to receive my last instructions. As soon as the happy-looking Martha had left the room, the bell was again rung, and on this occasion answered by a footman, the lively Peggy choosing to turn herself another way as soon as she heard it. "'Is Parsons gone?' demanded Sir Matthew of the servant. "'No, Sir Matthew, he's in the servant's hall,' was the reply. "'Desire him to step here directly.' Though the overlooker was enjoying some very comfortable refreshment, he promptly obeyed the summons, and as soon as he had again entered the study and shut the door behind him, his master said, "'Do you know, Parsons, whether the woman Armstrong can read?' "'Yes, sir, I know she can, and that's one reason why she is so outdacious about the workhouse and everything. There's nothing on earth does so much mischief among the mill people as making scholars of them," said the man. "'I know that well enough, who doesn't? But you may go now. I only wanted to ask you that one question.' replied the master. Once more alone, the knight again took to meditation. Profound as was the state of ignorance respecting all things beyond their own wretched dwellings in which the operatives at that time were kept, Sir Matthew had some misgivings as to the possibility that the name and fame of Deep Valley Mill might have reached even Hoxley Lane. If it had, the sending to a woman who could read indentures by which her child should become bound to that establishment till the age of twenty-one, was running a risk of more opposition than he wished to encounter. But he had a ready wit, and seldom remained long at a loss how to manage any business on which his mind had fixed itself. When Martha returned, therefore, he was quite ready with his last instructions. "'Have you found the little boy, my dear?' said he mildly. "'Yes, papa. He is waiting for me in the hall. Foolish little fellow. I believe he fears that you are very angry with him.' and he looked so much alarmed that I would not bring him in. Poor child! But you were quite right, my dear Martha. It is better not to harass him in any way. Now then, Martha, what you have got to do is this. Explain to the poor woman that it is my wish to keep my promise of providing for her boy, but that I am come to the persuasion that the apprenticing him to some respectable business will be better than letting him run about the place here learning nothing. You may talk to the little boy, you know. He is a sharp child, and I have no doubt will come to the same conclusion himself, if you state the thing to him properly. I have no doubt of it, papa, answered the innocent Martha. I will do my very best to make him understand it. And what trade shall I tell Mrs. Armstrong you have chosen for him? Stocking weaving, my dear. I really don't know a better. And we may be able to help him if that he behaves well as he goes on. Well then, papa, now I may go? Yes, my dear, now you may go. And you may just tell the woman, Martha, that if she approves the plan, I will call upon her myself some day with the papers. A pleasant walk to you. Goodbye. It was a very pleasant walk, for Martha was delighted with her companion. She opened to him kindly and clearly the plan for his being put apprentice to a respectable trade, and pointed out to his young but quick capacity the advantage this would give him in after life and the power he might hope to possess, if he behaved well, 
of providing for his mother and brother. "'Tis that what I should like best of all things,' said Michael. "'Because, please, ma'am, I know I must help him, as they beant neither of em so strong as I be. "'You are a good boy, Michael, for thinking of them so much as you do. "'That is the reason I take notice of you and love you.' The little fellow nestled closer to her side as they walked on, and raising the hand that held his, he laid it upon his shoulder and pressed his cheek upon it with very endearing fondness. "'What an affectionate little heart it is,' thought Martha, "'and how very happy I shall be if I can help to get this business settled for him.' Of course Miss Martha Dowling had never been in Hoxley Lane before, and notwithstanding or having so agreeable a companion— she speedily became aware that the region was as unpleasant as it was new. "'Is this the only road, my dear boy, by which we can get to your mother's house?' said she, almost mechanically enveloping her offended nose in her pocket-handkerchief. "'It is here that we lives, please, ma'am,' said the child, pulling her onwards. "'How very foolish of me,' thought Martha, withdrawing her handkerchief. "'Of course poor people live in poor houses. But I cannot think why the place should smell so.' Number twelve was, however, soon reached, and the young lady carefully led by her little attendant through the largest gap in the hedge to the outer door of the back kitchen, in order that she might escape Mrs. Sykes' crowded front one. "'Go on first, Michael, and tell your mother that I am coming,' said the considerate Martha. The child did so, but in this case there was no means for preparation, and having named the unexpected visitant and given his mother a hasty kiss— he returned before Martha had recovered the sort of shock which the dirty and desolate spot on which she stood had occasioned. In truth, no person unaccustomed to approach the dwellings of the operatives in the towns of the manufacturing districts can fail to be startled at the first near sight of them. In the very poorest agricultural village, the cottages which shelter its laborers have the pure untainted air of heaven to blow around their humble roofs but where forests of tall bare chimneys belching eternal clouds of smoke rear their unsightly shafts towards the sky, in lieu of verdant air-refreshing trees, the black tint of the loathsome factory seems to rest upon every object near it. The walls are black, the fences are black, the window-panes, when there are any, are all veiled in black. No domestic animal that pertinaciously exists within their tainted purlieus, but wears the same dark hue, and perhaps there is no condition of human life so significantly surrounded by types of its own wretchedness as this. Martha Dowling shuddered as she looked around her, and when Michael returned to lead her in, she felt half afraid of crossing the gloomy threshold. But the widow Armstrong was, as usual, less dirty in her abject misery than, perhaps, any other inhabitant of Hoxley Lane, or its immediate neighborhood and the mild countenance and gentle voice with which she replied to the young lady's salutation removed all her scruples, and she seated herself in the chair placed for her by Michael, with the best disposition in the world to improve the acquaintance. "'I hope you are getting better, Mrs. Armstrong,' said Martha, in that tone of genuine female softness which is so impossible to mistake, and that you don't miss little Michael as much as you did at first. "'You are very kind, ma'am, to take the trouble of coming to such a place as this.' "'replied the poor woman, in a voice that indicated something like surprise. "'Upon which Michael, who had stationed himself near enough "'to enable him to slip his little hand in hers, "'said, with a tolerably expressive emphasis, "'This is Miss Martha, mother. "'I wish, ma'am, I had strength and power to thank you as I ought, "'for all your condescending kindness to my poor boy,' said the widow earnestly. "'I never see him.' 
that he has not some fresh story to tell me of your goodness to him. He can read a chapter in the Bible now as well as any boy of his age need to do. And, oh, miss, this is all owing to you, for never could he have given his time to it in the factory. There is more praise due to him than to me, Mrs. Armstrong, I assure you. He is a very good boy at learning and minds every word that is said to him. I suppose he has shown you his copy-book too, hasn't he? I never saw a child that had so good a notion of writing. He was always a quick boy, miss. But never can he be thankful enough to you for teaching him how to put his quickness to profit. It will be the making of him. I am very glad to hear you speak so earnestly about his learning, because that makes me think that you will be pleased at hearing the business I am come upon. My papa, who is very... Here poor Martha stopped short. She was going to add kind to little Michael, but her honest heart would not let her pronounce the words. So she changed the phrase and went on with, Very desirous of being really useful to Michael, has commissioned me, Mrs. Armstrong, to ask you if you do not think it would be more profitable and advantageous to him to be apprenticed to some good trade, the stock-weaving, for instance, than to run about our house any longer. Papa says he fears it will give him habits of idleness which he may be the worse for all his life, and that would be quite contrary to his wishes, which have always been that he should benefit all his life long by his good behavior about the cow. Mrs. Armstrong's eyes, which had been fixed on the countenance of Martha, every line of which spoke of truth and sincerity, fell upon the work she held in her hand as these words were uttered, and for a moment she made no answer. But, feeling perhaps that this was both ungrateful and ungracious to her visitor, she looked up again and said, I am sure, ma'am, we can never thank you enough for all your kindness. There was the slightest emphasis in the world upon the word you, but it was enough to heighten the color of Martha, and for a moment she felt and looked displeased. My power of myself to befriend your boy, Mrs. Armstrong, is very little, I assure you, she said. Of course, it is natural that I should take more notice of him than a person like my father can, who has so many other things to attend to. But it is to his generosity and benevolence that you must look for any lasting advantage you may hope to gain from him. Indeed, ma'am, I would be happy to take your advice in the disposal of him any way. For I can't mistake your kindness, or your power to judge what is best, which of course must be greater than mine, notwithstanding your young age. And if Michael likes it, then you think it best, ma'am. Martha saw that the mother's fear of having her boy parted from her was combating the wiser hope for his future advantage, and, fully conscious that the continuing his present mode of life could only be productive of mortification, she boldly answered this appeal, and in the confiding innocence of her heart ventured to say, Perhaps in this case, girl as I am, my judgment may be better than yours, Mrs. Armstrong. I do not think it would be good or pleasant for Michael in any way to continue living at the lodge as he does at present. And I do think that if put to a respectable trade, he may not only provide for himself, but be a help and comfort to you and his brother likewise. This is my opinion, certainly, and now ask his. He is still younger than me, to be sure, poor little fellow, and yet I think you ought to listen to his opinion. Well, Mike, dear, said the widow, turning her head towards the child. You hear what the young lady says? Speak up, my dear, and tell us what you think about it. I be ready to go, mother, if she bids me, and you like it, replied the boy. You can judge, ma'am, that he knows his duty. That is just like him. From the time he was able to speak, dear creature, 
it was always the same, gentle, good, and reasonable. I won't say but what the parting with him will be a sore trial to me, but God forbid that I should set the wishes of my worn-out life against the hopes of his young one. How far away is it, miss? Do you happen to know where the master stocking weaver bides as he's to go to? Martha confessed her ignorance on this point, but added that though she should be sorry to hear it was too far off for him occasionally to come home and pay her a visit, she should be more sorry still were he to be placed in the town of Ashley. It would be only putting him for ever in the way of temptation, Mrs. Armstrong, said she, and I am sure you are too sensible a woman to wish that he should be where the doing his duty was likely to be a pain to him. Indeed, and that I would, said the poor woman earnestly. "'Tis the seeing their poor young faces for ever so sad and careworn that is the worst trial of all. "'How true is what my dear father says about the factory people,' thought Martha. "'How wonderfully they do all hate work!' This conviction of their epidemic idleness, however, in no degree chilled the good girl's desire at once to perform her father's will, and benefit a very interesting, though not, as she believed, a very industrious mother and son.' So, deeming it best to enter into no further discussion, but to accept the consent uttered by both as final and conclusive, she rose, and smiling good-naturedly at Michael, said, Now you have taught me the way here, I think I shall be able to get back again by myself. And I dare say, Michael, that you and your mother will like to have a little conversation together about this new plan for you. But remember, dear, that you are home by five o'clock to read your lesson and show me your copy-book. We were interrupted this morning, you know. Then, leaving in the poor widow's hand a welcome token of her visit, and promising that she would either bring or send the papers necessary for her to sign before long, the excellent Martha Dowling departed after having most innocently but most effectually lent her aid to the perpetration of as hateful a crime as the black heart of long-hardened depravity could devise. Having waited till the figure of the young lady had passed across the little window, the widow Armstrong pulled her boy towards her and gave him a mother's kiss. To be sure thee dost look all the better, my Mike, for good food and fine clothing. But I shan't be satisfied unless you tell me that you like all these new favors that they are going to confer upon you. I like to go, mother, very much, replied Michael stoutly. Thank God. Then, my darling, you are provided for, she rejoined with a deep sigh. I have known a many stocking-weavers, Mike, exceedingly well-to-do, and there was never one of them, I'll answer for it, that had a better will to work and to do his duty than you have. So I have no right to doubt, but what you will do well, and I don't doubt it. But tis the parting with thee, my dear, dear child. Oh, Mike, you have been a comfort to me ever since you was born, and how do I know if— Mother, cried the boy, interrupting her, I'll be a comfort to you still. I'll tell you what I've got in my head to do, and just see if it is not a good plan. I mean to be the very best boy that ever my master had, and when I've gone on working with him a bit, two or three months perhaps, mother, time enough for him really to find out that I am a good boy, I will tell him all about you and Teddy, and make him understand that if he wants to keep me in good heart to work, he must let me trudge away home to pass a Sunday now and then with you too. I don't think you'll be able to say no, mother, when I tell him about Teddy's poor legs, and all you have done for us both, lying abed here. Mrs. Armstrong again kissed her boy, and after gazing at him with a look in which pride and pleasure were strangely blended with anguish, she said, I do think you'll make your way, Michael. 
for you are a good boy, a very good boy. But I don't know how poor Edward will take it. That's the worst part of it, mother, replied the little fellow, beginning to cry. Poor Teddy does look so very happy of a night when he sees me pop round the corner upon him as he comes out of the factory. But then I shall be able to help him, mother, all the better by and by. And when I come home of a Sunday, mother, I must teach him to write, and then think how beautiful to have a letter from one another. I know who'll give me a slate for Teddy, and me too to learn with, and that's Miss Martha. And I shan't mind asking her, not the least, because she knows I am going away. And do you know, mother, I've got another notion, and that's no bad comfort neither. I should not a bit wonder if Miss Martha was to turn out a right good friend to you and Teddy when I am gone. And so the little fellow ran on, each hopeful word he uttered begetting a new hope, till by the time the hour of departure arrived, his poor mother had at least the comfort of believing that the prospect opening before him was one that he looked upon with much less of pain than pleasure. Meanwhile Martha found her way safely home, and gave her father such an account of the result of her mission as induced him to give her a kiss, and declare that if she was not the handsomest of the family, she was out and out the most useful. End of chapter 13